We're going to get into the teaching of the word today. We have been in a teaching series called The Balance of Grace, and we've shown this the last three weeks, right? What does the balance of grace look like? Well, on one end is licentiousness, which means it doesn't matter. It's the attitude that I can do whatever I want, and God will be okay with me. On the other end of the scale is legalism, where we all have to look the same way, be the same way, follow the same rules, and that's the only way we can be right with God. Both ends of that scale are wrong. We want to find the balance of grace in the middle. What is grace? Do you guys remember our definition of grace? It is the undeserved favor and help from God. We can never deserve it, right? Grace says that everything that I am and everything that I have comes from my union with Christ Jesus, not from my own merits, right? I don't have what I deserve. I have what I could never deserve. I have the grace of God. And so the balance of grace is this, that we no longer live under the burden of the law, but moral purity still matters. And that's what this series is about. We wanted to discuss moral purity, but we didn't want to do it in a legalistic way where we're judging people and shaming people. No, we wanted to discuss it and explore it from this picture of grace. Moral purity matters, but we want to find it in the balance of grace. And so we've been asking three questions. The first question we asked is, can a believer go on sinning? And we learned from Paul that the answer is certainly not. May it never be so. And we explored a grace that doesn't just save us from our sins. We explored a grace that teaches us and transforms us and empowers us so that we don't have to live that way anymore. The second question we asked was, what's the difference? Right? If sin is sin, and if we all have sin in our lives, then what's the difference? Why should we confront sin? Why should we discipline it? Why should we deal with it? Why should we stop it? What's the difference? And, and I, I thought last week we had a great time of teaching where we understood that for believers, there are different degrees of sin, right? And we looked at it from many perspectives in terms of, of deliberate versus unintentional confessed versus hidden, repented versus ongoing, right? We even talked about uh, that the sins that violate God's orders, God puts special focus and special attention on, but that it's really about context and response. The context being that the more we know God, the more we're in relationship with him, the deeper we've experienced him, the more accountable we're going to be for our sin. But also it's the response that matters. And we, we had five checkpoints of the heart that we could look at. Do we have the right heart response to sin in our lives? And so if you missed either of those two messages, go back, check the podcast, get caught up. And today we're going to ask the third question. And the third question is, what is the danger? I mean, if I just want to have a little fun and do what I want to do and live my way and then I can go and confess it and Jesus is going to forgive me, then what's the danger? Why not live a little? Why not have a little fun? We can just let our hair down. And what's the danger? That's, that's what we want to go after today. I want to start with a, a quote from R.C. Sproul. This is a, he is a, a writer and a teacher uh, a Christian writer and a teacher in the church today. Uh, he's written a lot of books. He's, he's a, a really brilliant person, and, and I love what he said here. He said, we want to be saved from our misery, 
but not from our sin. We want to sin without misery, just as the prodigal son wanted inheritance without the father. The foremost spiritual law of the physical universe is that this hope can never be realized. Sin always accompanies misery. There is no victimless crime, and all creation is subject to decay because of humanity's rebellion from God. Right? So if we want sin without the misery, that's not Christianity. That's religiosity. Right? I just, I just want to make sure I'm good to go. I can go to heaven. I got my get out of hell free card. I still want to live however I want. I just don't want to feel bad about it. I don't want any consequences of it. That's not following Jesus. That's religiosity. Following Jesus recognizes that misery always comes with sin and that we should long for something better. So let's dig into this question. What is the danger? If you've got your notes, you can find them in the bulletin on our church app attached to this video, attached to this podcast. Here's our big picture point today. This is what we're going after, is that there are dangers and consequences of moral impurity and ongoing sin. Even after the sin has been forgiven, believers should not take them lightly. And that's really what I want you to walk away from. If I repeat it three or four times today, that's what I want you to walk away from this message with, is don't take sin lightly. Don't take moral impurity lightly. There is a cost. And even if we find the grace of God from our sin, there is still a cost. And that's what we're going to dig into today. So you remember last Sunday I said that believers actually face a stricter judgment for what we're calling ongoing, willful, unrepentant sin. Believers face a stricter judgment. And we said, well, what does that stricter judgment look like? And I said, well, you got to wait till this week. So now here we are. And so we want to talk about this. If we've got ongoing sin in our lives, we're not repentant. We don't have the right heart attitude. We haven't had the right heart response to our sin, that there is a stricter judgment. But before we get into that, let me just remind us of the good news, that the condition of that sin can change in an instant. You've got willful, unrepentant sin in your life, and you're facing judgment for it. That can change in an instant. The moment you repent, the moment you confess, the moment you come back to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I want to be in union with you. I want to operate in a transforming grace. Come on. In a moment, that condition can change. So I don't want you to walk away from here thinking that we're bringing a message of condemnation. No, this isn't a message of condemnation. This is a message of warning to not take sin lightly but to know that we always have a place we can take our sin. Always have a place we can take our sin. So we're going to start today from Hebrews chapter 10. We actually read this verse last Sunday, but now we're going to read the whole passage that's attached to the verse. Right? We read verse 26, but now we're going to read 26 all the way to 31. It says this, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is terrifying. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's just leave that verse up there here for just a minute. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right? We need to have a proper perspective of the holiness of God. Think about this, right? How many times does the Bible say that God is love? Not how many times does it reference the love of God. We know that the love of God is referenced tons of times in the Bible. But how many times in the Bible does it say God is love? The answer is just two times. How many times does the Bible say God is holy? You can see it on the screen over 400 times. And I love this quote from Nathan Finocchio. He says this, you would think it's the opposite when you hear the songs and teaching of the church today, right? Because all we want to sing about and teach about is the love of God. God is loving. God is wonderful. He is awesome. And we lose sight of the fact that God is holy, which is a greater focus of the Bible than that God is love. God is holy. There is a holiness, and there should be a, a, a terrifying aspect of that holiness, is that we would fall into the hands of that holy God, unredeemed and unrepentant. Because when we just focus on love, what we've turned into is we've turned God into like a sappy old uncle, right? Right, where God is just like, whatever's, shoots, you just keep doing what you're doing. It's all good. That's not God. God is holy. But we don't talk about that a lot today. In 1741, Jonathan Edwards, who was one of the great revivalists of the first great awakening in America, before it was the United States of America, it was just the colonies of America. In 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was an evangelistic sermon. I'm sure he preached it many times because he was a traveling itinerant preacher. But he didn't just preach it at outreaches with big tents and you know, large crowds gathered together. The first time he preached the sermon was in a church full of people who thought they were good with God until they heard the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. We don't hear preaching like this anymore. You can go look up this sermon. You can find the text of it. Uh, just Google it online, but let me just read one paragraph of it to you just to hear the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. He said, so that thus it is that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those that are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. 
Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up one moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would fain lay hold on them and swallow them up. The fire pent up in their own hearts is struggling to break out and they have no interest in the mediator. There are no means within reach that can be any security to them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an incensed God. People don't preach like that anymore. But as we read the book of Hebrews, what are we hearing from the writer of Hebrews? It is terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God. What is the message? We shouldn't take sin lightly. We need to address this thing. We need to deal with this thing. So let's talk about the stricter judgment for believers. You can see in your notes that I've got five things I want to talk about that we can lose as believers if we choose to live in ongoing unrepentant sin. And you're going to see these things. You could kind of group them together. The first two are eternal things. The second two are kingdom of God things. And the last one is natural things, right? So let's look at this. The first one is this. What can we lose under this stricter judgment? Well, first off, we can lose our salvation. It's a loss of salvation. Now, there's some theologies there's a Calvinist theology. There's Reformed theology. There's some theologies that say once saved, always saved, right? That once you've given your heart to Jesus, that's it. You're good. You're always saved. We are not a Calvinist or a Reformed church. We are a charismatic church. We have Arminian theology. What does that mean? That means that we wrestle between the tension of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And we find our truth somewhere in that tension. But that means that we have a role to play. So how do Calvinists and Reformed theologians, how do they deal with people giving their lives to Jesus and then living in ongoing unrepentant sin? Do they lose their salvation? No, their answer is generally, well, they were never actually saved in the first place. But I want to look at the writer of Hebrews here, which we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. But the writer of Hebrews says this in verse 26, for if we go on sinning, simply by using the word we, the writer is including him or herself, right? If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, right? Not just hearing the knowledge of the truth, the writer is referring to people who have received the knowledge of the truth into their spirits. So the writer is clearly referring to believers, genuine believers. The writer including themselves in this statement. If we go on sinning willfully, there is no longer a sacrifice for our sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. To me, that sounds like eternity in hell which to me sounds like the writer of Hebrews is saying that even genuine believers who have received the knowledge of truth, that if they choose to go on sinning willfully, they can lose their salvation. You might argue with me on that, and that's okay. Another example that 
the writer of Hebrews was referring to genuine believers is because in verse 29, the writer says the blood of covenant by which he was sanctified. How can we be sanctified by the blood of covenant unless we are genuine believers, right? So this is referring to genuine believers who have done what? Who have made a mockery of God, right? It says who have trampled underfoot the Son of God. That when we choose to go on sinning willfully, we are taking Jesus, our Lord, and we are trampling him under our feet. It says, who have considered unclean the blood of the covenant by which we are sanctified. Which means we have taken the blood of Jesus, the very thing we celebrate once a month when we take communion together as a church. The blood by which the covenant has been ratified that we live in this new covenant with God. And we have taken the blood of Jesus and made it some unclean, unholy thing. We have made it worldly, normal, nothing special about it. And we have insulted the Holy Spirit who poured out the grace of God upon us so that we didn't have to live that way anymore. And when we choose to keep living that way, we insult him. Are you guys tracking with me here, right? This is not something to be taken lightly. We can lose our salvation. But even if you were to argue with me that we can't lose our salvation, let's talk about the second one, and that is a loss of heavenly rewards. Let's stop here and understand this, right? We talk so much about heaven that heaven is just this amazing place, right? We know that God is going to come and he's going to turn the earth back into what it was supposed to be to begin with, the, the, the perfect paradise of the Garden of Eden, and that we are going to dwell forever on this new earth in the presence of God. There doesn't need to be a sun or a moon because the light of God is going to light everything up and there's never going to be darkness and there's going to be uh, streets of gold and gates of pearl and there's going to be no tears and we're going to live in perfect heaven heavenly bodies, right? You guys with me? We talk about heaven. It's wonderful. But what we don't talk about is that there's different rewards in heaven, right? We are so focused on just that heaven is the reward that we don't talk about that there's different rewards in heaven. And this one we can kind of struggle with a little bit, right? Because it's like, well, wait a minute. If some people in heaven have more stuff than others, then won't that make some people envious and jealous? And then won't that, like, cause strife in heaven? And then heaven's not perfect? Well, let's dig into this. First off, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we know that as believers, we're not appearing before the judgment seat of Christ to determine where we're going because we know if our name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then we're going to heaven. But it says we're still going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. What does recompensed mean? It means compensated. It means that there is going to be a reward for what we did with our physical life before we enter into eternity. There are several times where Paul uh, refers to crowns, 
right? We talk about there's going to be crowns in heaven. Uh, one of those times is 2 Timothy 4.8 where he says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Right? So there is a special reward, not just going to heaven, but for those who have loved and passionately looked for the second coming of Christ, there's a reward. But probably the clearest teaching on this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul writes this, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, those are the good things, or with wood, hay, straw, those would be the wrong things to build with, right? We learned that from the three little pigs. All right, so it says, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. That means when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, everything we have done with our life, all the works that we have done are going to be put to the test. And if those works are precious, gold and silver and precious stones, then they're going to withstand the fire and we're going to take those things into heaven with us as a reward. But those things in our life that are wood, hay, and stubble are going to get burned up. And so it says this in verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. So everything that passes through the fire the gold, the silver, the precious stones, there is going to be a special reward in heaven. But if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. What does that mean? That means you're still going to heaven, but if you didn't do anything of spiritual value with the life that God gave you, you're going to get into heaven, but you're going to go into heaven smelling like smoke. Because you wasted the life that God gave you. Because you didn't produce anything precious with it. Are you guys with me? So the life that we live matters. There are heavenly rewards for the life that we live. God has only given us one life on this earth. And he wants us to do the most good with it we possibly can. And so that means we shouldn't take sin lightly because if we say, well, I'm just going to go on sinning because I'm going to be forgiven anyway, maybe, but you're going to come into heaven smelling like smoke because you didn't use your life for what it was intended for. So what is the danger of sin? It's the loss of heavenly rewards. I'll still get into heaven, but there'll be no reward for the life that I lived on earth. Let's go back to that initial thought. Well, doesn't that mean that there's going to be envy and jealousy? No. I'm going to go back to Jonathan Edwards. What are the odds that we're going to quote a 1700s preacher twice in the same sermon? But Jonathan Edwards addressed this idea of rewards in heaven and how, how does it work. And this is what he said. Every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others. 
So what he's saying is that we all go into heaven and heaven is going to be this glorious place of the presence of God, which means we're all going to be full. But how full you are depends on how big your vessel is. And how big your vessel is depends on the life that you lived while you're on earth. And there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven, but perfect love shall reign throughout the whole society. Right? So if you picture heaven that we're all vessels cast into an ocean of happiness, every vessel's going to be full. It's just some will be bigger than others. That is the reward of heaven. We don't want to lose that reward. So those are the eternal things that we face. We could lose our salvation. We could lose the rewards of heaven. Let's talk about some kingdom of God things here on earth that we could lose. Remember 1 Timothy chapter 1? I told you we were going to reference it all three sermons. Let's go back. Let's reference it again. Paul writing to Timothy, 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 whoo, says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a prosecutor, a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Prosecutors are okay. It's not sinful to be a lawyer. Okay. A persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Listen to this. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost sinner... Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Because Paul experienced the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus, he was transformed. He said, I used to be a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, but not anymore. I've been transformed. I'm something different now, right? And he says, listen, this is why God chose me. This is why Jesus poured out his grace upon me is so that I would be a trophy of his grace so that the whole world could see the transformation in my life and they might believe in Jesus and they might find eternal life. So what is the stricter judgment? What is the danger of living in sin? It's the loss of our witness. It's the loss of our witness. Listen, Jesus didn't pour his grace out on your life just for your sake. He poured it out on your life so that others could find it too. And when we walk in the empowerment of God's grace and the transformation of God's grace, people look at our lives and they say, wow, something's different about you. Something has changed. What is it? And you can tell them the goodness of your God. And you can tell them the gospel that saves them from sin and saves them from an eternity in hell and that they could have the same grace to transform their lives. But if you choose... To just continue living in sin after giving your life to Jesus, you have no witness. You don't look any difference. And people who were supposed to go to heaven maybe won't go to heaven because you chose to live in sin. That is the danger. And that is the stricter judgment.
is that we're going to lose our witness. And that is a heavy burden to carry. What did Jesus say about that burden? He said, it'd be better for a stone to be hung around your neck and you'd be thrown into the bottom of the sea than you were to lead somebody astray. Right? The loss of our witness. Let's talk about another kingdom loss that affects us here on earth. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul specifically addresses sexual immorality in the church. And in verse 1, he says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. So what is happening in the church in Corinth? There is a man in the church who is having an ongoing open sexual relationship with his stepmother. Paul is saying, man, even the pagans aren't cool with that. And it's happening right in the middle of your church. He goes on to challenge the Corinthians because not only have they not addressed it, they've celebrated it. They said, look, we're such a forgiving, gracious people. We let him keep doing it, and he's still a part of our church. And Paul says, no, that's not how to be the church. He says, you need to confront that sin, and you need to get him out of the church. And then in verse 6, he says this, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Right? And, and Paul is using Jewish imagery here of the Passover feast, right? That with the Passover, the Jews had unleavened bread. Why? Because they left Egypt so quickly, they didn't have time to let their bread rise. And so every year they celebrate the Passover with the feast of unleavened bread, where for a week they don't put any leaven in their bread, and they just eat flat bread all week because they celebrated what God has done. He's using that imagery to talk about sin. That sin is like leaven in the church. And when you put a little bit of leaven into your dough of bread, it gets through the entire dough. So what is the danger? It's a loss of healthy biblical community. The church is supposed to be the place where we can come and we can learn new ways of life. Where we are delivered from the brokenness of our old ways of life, and we are brought into the family of God where we can learn new ways of life. So if within the church we are allowing ongoing sin, then we are losing the very biblical community that the church was intended for. And instead of learning a new way of life, the poison of sin spreads through the whole community and infects all of us. So the kingdom of God dangers here on earth are that we lose our witness and we lose our healthy biblical community. And then finally, the last one in your notes is the loss of natural things. The loss of natural things. There are natural consequences to sin, right? If we are gluttonous and we eat too much, we're going to be overweight, that is a natural consequence. If we're overweight for too long, then we get diabetes, we have heart problems, and, and we have to face that reality, right? 
That's just a natural consequence. It would be the loss of our health. Right? If we, if we choose to drink and we lose control of our drinking, we could lose a lot of natural things, right? We could lose our job. We could lose relationships. We could go driving drunk and kill somebody. And now we go to prison because we've lost our freedom. There's a loss of natural things, right? If we go out and practice sexual unfaithfulness, we could lose our marriage. There are natural consequences of sin, right? God knew what he was doing when he created us. And when it comes to this discussion of moral purity, right, God created us to be in a sexual relationship with one person that we are in covenant with. And how do we know that? Because the more we study biology, the more we understand what God was doing. Do you know that when you have sexual activity with somebody, your body releases a hormone called oxytocin that floods through your body? What is oxytocin? What does it do? It creates bonding and trust. The other most common time that oxytocin is released is when a mother nurses her baby because it creates that bonding and that trust between mother and baby. But it's also released during sexual activity because it creates bonding and trust between two people. Why? Because sexual activity was supposed to happen in a monogamous lifelong covenant. So there are natural consequences. When we have sex with somebody who we're not in a lifelong monogamous covenant with, we bond with that person and then we break that bond. And when we do that repeatedly, we make it harder and harder for us to trust and be intimate with people. There are natural consequences for our sin, right? If you have outbursts of anger, you're going to have relationship problems. If you're a gossip, you're going to have a bad reputation. You guys understand there are natural consequences to our sins. And just because Jesus forgives us and makes a way for us to go to heaven doesn't mean that all those natural consequences are cleaned up. They don't always. I always tell people, you know, uh, when I came to Christ and was forgiven, my truck still got repossessed and I still had bad credit. Why? Because I made a bunch of bad choices, and there were natural consequences to those bad choices, right? When I came to Christ and gave my life to Jesus and I was forgiven of all my sins, I still had to go and report to my PO every week. Why? Because there were still consequences to my sins that I still had to deal with. I still had debt that took me years to pay off because there were still natural consequences. And remember, the stricter judgments. The longer you've known God, the more influence and authority that you have in the church, maybe the greater your consequences are going to be. Let me read this from Timothy Keller, another great teacher and preacher of our time. He said this, Every one of our sinful actions has a suicidal power on the faculties that put that action forth. When you sin with the mind... That sin shrivels your rationality. When you sin with the heart or the emotions, that sin shrivels your emotions. When you sin with the will, that sin destroys and dissolves your willpower and your self-control. Sin is the suicidal action of the self against itself. 
Sin destroys freedom because sin is an enslaving power. There are natural consequences to sin. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? I don't want this sermon, I, I want you guys to take this seriously, but I don't want this sermon to be all harsh and bad news and gloom. So let's talk about the antidote. How do we respond? I just want to give you a few things here as we wrap up. First, do not be deceived. Paul wrote that to the Galatians. He said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Do not be deceived. Listen, we live in a world that tells you you can do whatever you want and be okay with God. Do not be deceived by the world's teaching. Don't fall for it. One of the things I really struggle with is when we celebrate celebrities who declare the name of Jesus, right? They might be movie stars or athletes, and they say the name of Jesus, and we're like, "Well, yeah, they said the name of Jesus on TV. That was awesome. Except when that same celebrity is living with his girlfriend and had a baby with her and is drunk in public, then suddenly we're getting a mixed message about the power of the gospel. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Do not trample the Son of God underfoot. We've got to recognize that sin is to be taken seriously. Yes, there is grace. And anytime we sin, we should go right to the throne of grace and repent of that sin. But don't think that we can just sin freely without consequence. Don't be deceived. The second thing is, don't be paralyzed. Remember what I said, the condition of our sin can change in a moment. And God is the restorer of all things. So don't be paralyzed in a sense of shame like, well, I've already blown all my heavenly rewards. I've already lost my marriage. I've already made so many mistakes in my life. So uh, whatever, I guess I'm a lost cause. No, don't be paralyzed by shame or regret or fear. Whatever is lost is lost, but you still have a future ahead of you that God can use. And God is the restorer of all things. The Bible says that he will restore what the canker worm has eaten. So don't be paralyzed. Paul said this, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. What is he saying? He says, I'm going to keep pushing forward to discover the purpose that Jesus has for my life. And brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Don't let the mistakes that you've already made paralyze you and stop you from pressing on to discover the purpose that Jesus has for your life. Don't be paralyzed. And can I give you a sub-point to don't be paralyzed? Can I also say do not hesitate? If there's sin in your life, the best time to deal with it is right now. Don't hesitate. There is a story in Exodus that fascinates me when, when God is bringing the ten plagues upon the nation of Egypt. And, of course, Moses is the arbiter of the ten plagues. He's the one that starts them, and he's the one that has the authority to stop them. And one of the plagues was frogs, which hits kind of close to home because we see smashed frogs on our church driveway all the time. 
The plague was frogs. There was frogs everywhere, millions of frogs. Like you couldn't take a step on the ground without stepping on a frog. And when you opened your fridge, there were frogs in it. And when you tried to go sit on the toilet, there was frogs in it, right? And there's just frogs everywhere. You couldn't get away from the frogs. It was disgusting. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, are you sick of the frogs? And Pharaoh says, yeah, we're sick of the frogs. And Moses says, okay, then you tell me when to pray and I will pray for all the frogs to go away. And you know what Pharaoh says? He says, tomorrow. That blows my mind. That's like the weirdest answer ever. Why would you spend one more night with the frogs? Why didn't he say today? Listen, when it comes to sin, don't be paralyzed and don't hesitate. Don't spend one more night with the frogs. If you've got sin in your life, deal with it today. That's right. Preach it, Max. Hallelujah. Flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.18, that's exactly what Paul says. He says, flee immorality. Every other sin is man commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality, man sins against his own body. Flee from sexual immorality. Why, why did I put that in here? Because, you know, the Bible talks about put on the full armor of God. Stand your ground. When the enemy attacks, hold up your shield. Hold up your sword. Fight spiritual warfare. Fight the enemy. Everything Paul says is to stand and fight, except when it comes to sexual sin. Paul says, run. We are not supposed to test ourselves against sexual sin. We're supposed to run from it. Get as far away from it as you can. See, we're caught up when we're trying to live with one foot with Jesus and one foot in the world. We ask ourselves, how much sexual sin can I participate in and still be okay? How close can I get and still be okay? That's the wrong question. The right question is, how far away from it can I possibly get? Get away from it. Get away from it. And then finally, let me have the worship team come back up today. How do we deal with sin? We return to the things that pertain to godliness. Peter started his second letter to the church this way. He said, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He wants grace multiplied in their lives. He says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We have become partakers of the divine nature. How do we overcome the corruption of the world? How do we overcome the lust and the sin of the world? By getting back to the things that pertain to life and godliness. What are those things? It's every bit of truth and promise that comes from the word of God. Every bit of truth and promise that comes from the word of God. So here's an interesting thing, right? We started in Hebrews 10, 26. 
And the writer said, if we go on sinning willfully, and then we read the whole passage, right? What was the writer of Hebrews talking about right before that? Let's go back and read it. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together. Right before verse 26, the very thing the writer of Hebrews was talking about is everything that pertains to life and godliness. Because Jesus made a way for us through the veil, what should we do? We should sincerely draw near to the presence of God. We should hold fast to our confession of faith. We should stir one another up to good works, and we should always gather together as the church. When we're doing those things, we're not very likely to fall into ongoing sin. Right? When we're doing the things that pertain to life and godliness. So if there's sin, let's deal with it today. Let's go back to the five checkpoints of the heart that we went through last week, and let's respond to our sin. In the meantime, let's flee from sexual immorality. Let's get as far away from it as we can. And let's do the things that pertain to godliness so that we can live the life and the witness and the community and all the rewards that God intended for us. Amen? Will you stand with me? Come on, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you have reminded us today to take sin seriously. That yes, there is grace and that grace is wonderful. But sin always comes with a price. And sin is always accompanied by misery. And Lord, we don't want to pay that price. So Father, I pray today that by your spirit, you would open up our hearts. That we would not live in religiosity. That we would not live hidden lives. That we would not smile at church and then go home and be somebody else apart from church. But that this would be a place of authenticity. This would be a place of genuine faith. This would be a place where we could be real and say we're not perfect. And that together as a community, we can deal with our brokenness. We can repent of our sins. We can long for something better. We can hold one another up and love one another. And we can experience the transforming grace of God. Would you do that in us today? Lord, would you mark that in this church, that that is who we are? Thank you for that, Jesus. Your grace is so good. As we worship you today, Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts? Would you teach us? Would you draw things out of us? If there is sin to be dealt with, Lord, would you give us the courage to deal with it right now? Jesus, if there be a place in our life where we have been deceived, would the truth shine brightly right now? If there be a place in our life where we have been paralyzed by shame and fear, Lord, would you come and set us free by your perfect love right now that we could move forward and discover all that our life was intended for. 
We thank you for this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.